Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. (laughs) Or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. Listening to Movie Oubliette episode 56. And this is a childhood nostalgia episode. We are a transcontinental film review podcast with me, Dan, catching up on all the movies you have to watch before you die in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, catching up on Fright Night Part 2 because Heather Wixon told me to in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> She did. In this podcast, we discuss forgotten fantastical films, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, because we all secretly want to be 14-year-old boys again, exploring the galaxy in a spaceship made out of washing machine doors and trash cans. Yay! Conrad. (laughs) Don't we just? How are you today? We do. I'm not too bad, yes. Starting to come out of lockdown here, which is quite nice. I'm excited. Ah, yes. Well, my state is actually tightening restrictions, so some more cases, so not loving that. But what I do love is mailbag. What do you have for me, Conrad? We've got quite a smattering of of different types of correspondence on different films. So first off, Jonathan King, director of Black Sheep and our special guest on episode 41 on the subject of the purple and green colour scheme in Vamp, got in touch to say... I had a job in the early 90s at a place that released a Hulk Hogan movie. We were given specs that said, as per our agreement with Marvel Comics, the colours purple and green must never be used in association with Hulk Hogan. I think also I I mentioned that I didn't know you could trademark colours. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He did. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And he came back and said, oh, and I just remember that the word incredible was verboten too. I don't think the colours were trademarked. I think it was, if you stay away from the colours purple and green and the word incredible, we won't come after you for our trademark on the Incredible Hulk. (laughs) I do feel like the Hulk movies are probably the least successful Marvel movies, though, so... Don't know why they're putting all the eggs in one basket there. Yeah, there were several attempts to make a standalone Hulk movie, weren't there? And not with the guy that eventually ended up being in all the Avengers movies. So yeah. I, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that Ang Lee movie is oh, it does not age well. No, it's that that's the one where Serge pointed out the ridiculousness of the helicopter. Pilots. Oh, yes, 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 yes. We're fine. <laughs> we're fine. Yes, we're fine. We crashed, but we're fine. <laughs> and speaking of Surge, he got in touch to render his opinion on Turbo Kid. Good old Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hey, Surge. Hello, Surge. And speaking of cold, this movie left him cold. He said, Turbo Kids got me wondering what the point of negative reviews even are. Just because it traffics in all my least favourite tropes, 
Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And the Power Rangers meets Mad Max aesthetic does absolutely nothing for me. Doesn't mean I don't want anyone watching it to have a good time. Yeah. Well, I definitely had a lot of fun, so suck on that too. (laughs) I did too. (laughs) No, it's interesting. I'd love to get Serge back on the show and for us to have a mad disagreement about something. I think it would be really interesting. Yes, 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 yes. And most excitingly, we heard from Laurence Leboeuf on Turbo Kid. Mm, The actress from Turbo Kid. (laughs) Yes, the actress who plays Apple after I tweeted out our favourite quote and we said that Apple saying, this is my gnome stick, was our favourite quote in the movie. And she came back and said, love my gnome stick. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if she's got it at home still. Like, the prop. That would be amazing. Oh, wow. That would be great. That really would be good. (laughs) One thing I particularly enjoyed is Kenny Wong, who's her co-star in the TV series Transplant at the moment. He came back and said, this was the best thing I've watched all week. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, obviously, he did not know about this aspect of his co-star's past. Ah, Bringing out all the things from her closet, including her gnome stick. (laughs) Including her gnome stick. She should take it to work. If she's still got it, she should take it to Transplant and try and sneak it (laughs) background of one shot or something yes (laughs) that would be great (laughs) most excitingly of all for me personally anyway was we heard from Lamatos who were very pleased with our glowing review of their soundtrack they said thanks movie oubliet for the sick review and for saying our names the right way (laughs) so that's great I mean how else would you pronounce their name though I don't know La Matos. I don't know. How could you get that wrong? (laughs) When we were talking about our favourite quote, actually, we got a couple of comments from people on Twitter on what was their favourite quote. Seb Savage said his was eyes, throat, genitals. (laughs) We we didn't actually mention that in the pod, but uh, it's such a good quote. We didn't. It's fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's also in the uh, that prequel music video that um, Le Matos made yeah. with Apple. Yeah, if you haven't checked it out, <laughs> listeners, uh, check out their music video. No Tomorrow, it is amazing. Sung by Paws, P-A-W-W-S. Her music is also really great. Check her stuff out too. And finally, we heard from our friend Nick in Devon in the UK. Oh, <laughs> Do you remember yes. he sent us a letter about how he was listening to the Black Sheep episode oh, and suddenly realised on his morning run the he sheep was by sheep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure we should call him the sheep guy. Okay. That's not great. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he got in touch to tell us of another strange coincidence he experienced when listening to the pod. He says, About an hour into my run, when the Turbo Kid episode was winding up, excellent episode, by the way, definitely need to see this movie. Thanks for that, Nick. I heard the great news about what movie is coming next from the Oubliette. Explorers was a childhood favourite of mine and I'm really looking forward to your review of it. Saw it many times when I was young, but not for a few years now. When the podcast ended, I still had about half an hour left of my run, so I chose a music playlist on my phone and set off. Now I have several playlists on my phone. 
but what threw me was the very first song to appear when I pressed shuffle was none other than Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) Can you believe it? Wow. That's amazing. We're going to find out about the song very soon, aren't we? We are, yes. It has a very special significance to the movie, so there we go. (laughs) Wonderful hearing from everyone, and yeah, we really love these long emails as well. We do, yes. Please do send us any strange coincidences that happen to you while you're listening to the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, 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 yes. So I have mentioned this is a childhood nostalgia episode. Conrad, Mm. are you going to be treating me to something from your youth? Yes, I think so. Let me just go into the oubliette and find something off my old VHS shelf. Oh, yes. (gasps) Oh, my. What's that coming? It's really scary. (laughs) Noisy, too. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Watch where you put those hands. What's he doing to you? Inappropriate. Okay, it's given me a movie. I'm coming back. Okay. Oh, space pirates. Well, I never. (laughs) Uh, What do you have? So I have a film that I have mentioned once or twice during the 55 episodes <laughs> we've recorded so far. Yes. At long last, it is Explorers, the 1985 science fiction fantasy film written by Eric Luke and directed by Joe Dante, uh-huh. starring Mr. Dante. a very young Ethan Hawke, River Phoenix, Jason Presson, fleeting glimpses of Amanda Peterson and Robert Picardo, as well as Dick Miller and James Cromwell Mm. in small roles. James Cromwell, I always know as the babe guy, even though he's been in a multitude of (laughs) excellent films, but I just always know him from Babe. (laughs) Yes. For me, he's always Ephraim Cochran from Star Trek. Oh, yes. Okay. So what's Explorers about, Conrad? Well... Ben Crandall is your average suburban American 14-year-old in 1985. He watches 50s sci-fi movies and figuratively dreams of being an astronaut while literally dreaming of flying over a Tron-style circuit board. And when he gives one of the diagrams of his circuit board to his geeky best friend Wolfgang, Wolfgang builds the circuit, connects it to his Apple II computer and discovers they've created a force field bubble that they can control and even sit inside. With the help of mechanically savvy Darren, they build a spaceship out of a -a tilt-a-whirl and create havoc around town, exciting the interest of local helicopter sheriff Charlie. But where are the dreams coming from? Why does the ship begin to develop a mind of its own? And where does it want to take them? And will they get caught by the sheriff before they can find out? All will be revealed in Joe Dante's Explorers. Oh, let's explore. Yes, and as well as the two of us exploring this, including you seeing it for the very first time, so I'm very nervous, we will also have a special exclusive interview with none other than Robert Picardo himself in this episode. Wow. Yes, he joined us to talk about it to uh, mark the 35th anniversary of this movie because it came out on July 12th, 1985. Uh, Yes, and this episode is going to be a bit of a different format. Normally when we get a guest on, we talk about another movie, but Conrad had the pleasure of talking to Robert Picardo about Explorers, in which he was in. So there's going to be two blocks of the interview and... And also a very tasty piece of trivia from Mr. Picardo. 
After the break will be part one of the interview. Oh yes, he's great. <laughs> Hello, this is Robert Picardo, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Our guest today is a distinguished actor whose career spans Broadway, television, and film. His experience as a pre-med student may have prepared him for several surgical roles. He's played doctor to the Golden Girls in Miami and to soldiers on China Beach in Vietnam. But he's undoubtedly best loved among fans of our favorite genres for his role as the doctor in the Delta Quadrant on Star Trek Voyager. Yes, I'm very excited to welcome the indescribably wonderful Robert Picardo. Hello. Hello, Conrad. It's a pleasure to speak to you uh, all the way across the Atlantic. So we're celebrating the 35th anniversary of Explorers. Oh, yes. You and the 17 people who actually saw the film. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's quite a growing cult of 80s kids who very fondly remember this movie, probably from cable TV and, and VHS. I don't know if that's something that you've experienced experienced in your travels? Yes. No, I would have to say that at every convention I go to, whether it's a Star Trek, a dedicated Star Trek convention, or whether it's one of these sort of big box Comic-Con type events that are designed to have the sort of blunderbuss approach to uh, (laughs) science fiction and fantasy fandom, where they have a little of everything, that uh, there is always at least one dedicated Explorers fan. Oh, that's great. Yes. So let's just set the scene for the film. This wasn't your first with director Joe Dante, was it? Uh, That would be The Howling. Um, Yes, uh, Howling, but I believe this was our second collaboration. I'm pretty sure I've done about a dozen projects with Joe, either in feature film or television movies or television shows. He's been a great and loyal uh, friend to me for the last 40 years. Yes. What was it like working with him the first time? Did you hit it off right away? Yes. um, He had seen me in uh, a Broadway role, I had done uh, a play called Tribute, and it was primarily a father-son conflict and resolution comedy drama, and uh, Jack Lemon played the father and I played the son. It was uh, one of the great experiences of my career. Mm. And uh, Joe Dante, who I think was a pretty big Jack Lemon fan, had come to see the play mm. and asked the casting director for The Howling, whose name was Susan Arnold, to uh, have me in to read for the part of Eddie Quist. Ah. My character, although Tribute had a lot of comedy in it, my character was the more serious of the two of us. Jack's character was sort of a Peter Pan, good time Charlie, irresponsible father, and I was the sort of reactionary conservative son. And I had a very explosive emotional scene at the end of the first act Mm. uh, where I had to just blow up on him. And for some reason, um, Joe Dante sitting in the audience must have gone, there's my werewolf. (laughs) (laughs) So I was cast. I've always been a horror movie fan. And uh, my part was shot over uh, basically on just a couple of days, but spread out over several weeks, as I recall. And most of the transformation scene was after principal photography had wrapped on the film. But during the shooting, when things went wrong, I had done a lot of joking and cutting up in the makeup when my rubber bladder in my shoulder exploded or whatever. <laughs> and I recall specifically uh, as the werewolf singing Old Man River and making <laughs> Joe laugh it, during lighting breaks when we were just waiting. So he learned that I had a sense of humor and then I had an improvisational skill, I think, from that experience. Mm. And he offered me Explorers 
because the third act of the film wasn't really finished. You know, they had a go on the project. They were going to start shooting, and I think Joe didn't think the final act of the film really worked because the original concept was that the alien character, Whack, which was my primary role, spoke entirely in archival audio tracks of famous people from American television. Mm. The idea was that this alien kid had been watching television in space, capturing the electromagnetic waves, watching TV, and had formed his whole concept of Earth culture as sort of a cut-and-paste patchwork of what he had heard and seen on television. And Joe thought that the idea of using other voices, you know, using Desi Arnaz as Ricky Ricardo and using famous TV game show announcers or James Mason's voice or any very highly identifiable voice, he thought, I remember him saying to me, I think that joke's going to wear itself out in about 10 seconds. (laughs) So he knew that they were going to have to create something with whatever actor played it. And I think he felt at that point that I was a pretty good bet for being able to come up with the goods on short notice. Yes, I wondered about that because it's quite famous that when filming started, the third act really hadn't been decided upon. Did that mean that you had an awful lot of creative freedom to create the character of Whack? Well, first of all, I think I drove the prop men crazy because I would (laughs) ask for things at the last minute. For some reason, they decided they wanted me to sing, so they let me pick the Little, Little Richard song. I was given this entire album that they had the rights to, and I could pick any Little Richard song I wanted. (laughs) So I picked uh, All Around the World, Rock and Roll is All They Play, because at least it had a cosmic reference. I mean, at least it selected our planet as a whole. Mm. So I thought, um, I asked to play the saxophone because the song had a sax break. So the poor prop men had to come up with an alien looking saxophone, which they did on short notice brilliantly, I may say. The alien saxophone is hilarious. But really the pattern that developed was I would sit in the makeup chair getting the hours of makeup put on me and do nothing but think of funny things to say. And usually I ran them by Joe, but there was one famous day where I had made up a whole monologue in my head, and I simply did it in, on camera for the first time, which is a terrible thing to do to young Ethan Hawke, who had never acted in a movie before. Mm. The dialogue was ostensibly his character begging me to come back and visit Earth. Yeah. And the idea was that it was supposed to be a serious moment there where I say, look, look how you treat us. And then Then I would run all the famous clips from the day the Earth stood still and all the alien invasion movies where the aliens are attacked and killed by humans. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought, you know, I knew I had to get to that point, but I just thought I'd have a little fun (laughs) with my character not knowing immediately. Think about it. If you learn all about Earth culture watching television, Mm. how do you know of all the things you see on TV, which are human and which are not, you know? Yes. <laughs> so I, out of the blue, and as I recall, for the first time, not even in rehearsal, I think I saved it for camera. I say, I know I look strange to you, but how do you think you look to me? I, I mean, I watched four whole episodes of Lassie before I figured out why the little hairy kid never spoke. I mean, he could roll <laughs> over and play dead. Great, but I didn't think he deserved a series. Do you? And his eyes were literally rattling in his head when I said, you know, because I put him on the spot and he had no idea where this was. And he, to his great credit, he didn't laugh or break character. He just looked bewildered. Yes. And it's all in the movie. Now, 
I would have thought this poor young man will never act again because he's been so traumatized by his experience with me. And of course, he's turned into one of the great actors of his generation. So he, apparently this childhood trauma, did not, if it had any effect on him, it simply motivated him to future greatness. So uh, it's all to his credit. Yes. But I remember thinking that day, this is not a very fair thing to do to a young actor, to simply go out there and throw these things at him. But he was a great sport. Yes. Well, that is a wonderful moment moment, though, at the end of the movie. And I think it one of the great things that you particularly do with your characters, which is that you're able to create a lot of empathy and pathos with your characters, whilst also injecting a lot of humour. You've done that with the Doctor on Voyager multiple times. And I thought that moment with Whack is all the more touching for the Lassie gag. It's just wonderfully funny. And Jerry Goldsmith in the background is just playing the seriousness of it. He doesn't play the comedy at all in the music. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a moving moment, and all the more so because it's funny, I think. But that's such a trademark Joe Dante thing as well, to, mm. you know, really touch your heartstrings, but also be subversive at the same time. You know, that's something Joe does so well. And he's one of the great directors of young actors. He gets mm. such natural performances out of his young players, which is, you know, because Joe has that almost childlike sense of fun that I think that young actors really pick up on and they feel safe working with him. You know, even in a big budget movie set, Joe is always very relaxed and makes all of the actors feel that they have the time to do their best work and to be creative. I've made a billion suggestions to Joe's and many of them have made it in the movie to which I'm delighted about it. Mm. It was impossible not to look forward to going to set every day when you're working with him because of that freedom and that sense of fun that he had, yes. you know, and trust that he extended to you. One of the most uh, frequent flyers from my VHS shelf on a Sunday night before I had to go back to school. <laughs> I've seen this movie probably a few hundred times. Yes. Dan, you had never seen it. No. Is that right? No. Never <laughs> seen it. Never heard of it. I have to say before we started this podcast, I think the only Joe Dante movie I'd ever seen was Gremlins. Mm. So very green in the Joe Dante oeuvre of film the first thing that did strike me about this film is how similar it is to flight of the navigator which oh. we <laughs> covered with duncan i mean flight of the navigator is about a boy that discovers a spaceship and converses with an alien being i mean it's the spaceship and then flies off into the cosmos <laughs> it's very kind of similar i mean three kids discover some bubble orb thing that they can encase themselves in that somehow make a computer eject oxygen. I'm still <laughs> unsure of how that is possible <laughs> out of a computer circuit board. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, and then they go into space and, uh, spoilers, they meet up with some aliens. Mm. It's a very similar premise. It is, yes. And it's um, also lacking an antagonist, really. I mean, I guess this movie has Dick Miller's authority figure, but uh, he doesn't really want to stop the kids so much as just find out what they're doing mm. because it awakens his own childhood curiosity and there are hints in the movie that maybe he's received the dreams as well when he was a kid yeah. so 
he's sort of trying to find them and they're racing towards the end to launch before he catches them but then when he sees them launch he just says way to go kid and yeah and he's happy for them just looks off into the distance <laughs> exactly so in the same way that david freeman in flight of the navigator has got nasa chasing after him they're not really antagonists they don't want to blow up the ship or anything like that they just want to know what's going on which is fair enough which makes both movies kind of light and not too threatening i guess yeah i mean i would say that flight of the navigator did have much more threat and much more sort of i don't know danger mm. with the nasa security not nasa um, <laughs> of course. whereas with this there was really nothing uh, and I didn't actually notice until you just pointed it out that there really isn't any threat. Even the father barging in on the aliens in the ship is just like a stroppy dad, really, yeah. barging on <laughs> in, into your bedroom. Um, there wasn't really any danger, and they just hop into their spaceship and fly home. Yeah. Wack also sort of makes fun of it, doesn't he? Because when the father shows up, he says it's space pirates right. to try and give them a traditional antagonist to be afraid of. Mm. But then it just turns out to be their dad. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they've just stolen the car, you know, just <laughs> yeah. gone for a, a joyride. Yeah. So it's a fairly light and frothy kind of movie. The characters are slightly different, though, I would say, because although the character Ethan Hawke plays in his very first film role mm. is your traditional suburban middle-class American kid from a fairly well-to-do family that's just sort of disaffected. He describes his parents as boring when mm. he's talking to Darren. They're still together, but they talk about the most boring stuff all the time. So he's fairly standard, although his interest in 50s sci-fi is a little bit unusual, I guess. Yes. Mm. But then the other two kids are sort of um, off the beaten track in terms of what you'd normally get in this kind of movie. Yeah, I mean, so Darren, he's kind of the outcast, I guess, the rough and ready kid that has probably got problems at home with his parents and... Yeah, it skips class and rides a mini motorbike, which is just the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. I mean, yeah. why isn't he the coolest kid in school? And then, yeah, you've got Wolfgang, which is uh, the oddest portrayal of a nerdy kid family I've ever seen. So his whole family's like German, is that right? And yeah. they're all scientists. They all wear glasses, and Wolfgang just walks around like a mini adult in a lab coat and shirt and tie. It's pretty bizarre. It is, yeah. Their house is a complete mess, and he seems to have about 18 brothers and sisters, so there's kids everywhere yes. in the sink flicking food at each other. And it's, uh, yeah, it's an unusual family. They're kind of quirky. They're played for laughs mm. a lot of the time. River Phoenix, and this is his first movie. He'd done TV work before this. He hated playing that character really yes wow especially when amanda peterson was on set and whenever they said cut he'd take his glasses off because he auditioned for the role of darren he wanted to be oh. the rough and ready kid from the wrong side of town which was something that he could more relate to given his sort of hippie upbringing sure but he ended up playing this really nerdy kid and he did not enjoy it at all when girls were nearby yeah i didn't even recognize him and he definitely grew into his looks i mean mm. i guess the glasses didn't help but yeah i was surprised that he was the nerdy kid in this film yeah he's good at it though i mean they're all really natural in this film yes they're not 
sort of your traditional Disney child actors. They are fully fledged characters with lots of quirks and you totally believe in them individually mm. and in their friendship, in all of its oddities that kids will just end up bumping along together despite the fact that they're all really odd. They're really different <laughs> you, as well, yeah. but they have a similar goal. You know, they've discovered mm. this technological orb that just defies all science, really, um, using a computer that runs on a nine-volt battery? I mean, how does that work? I don't know. It's even more ridiculous, as you say, when they generate oxygen from a circuit board. Yeah. I have no idea how that works. <laughs> no makes no sense. But, I mean, the science aside, like, I did appreciate the sort of detail they went into the computer and the programming and coding and, mm. and sort of the images, the, the mapping of the environments that they had was, you know, it was believable. Like, it looked like they knew what they were doing. It looked like Wolfgang was some sort of computer prodigy that had somehow managed to put this together from the dreams mm. of Ben just... <laughs> Dreaming about circuit boards. <laughs> As you do. you do. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> I mean, that sort of CGI effects when he's flying through the circuit board, oh, it really, it so reminded yeah. me of like Lawnmower Man. Oh, God. And, and just that really <laughs> 80s kind of CGI, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much of its time. It is, but it's sort of a style that people are imitating now because of its rudimentary glowing line style. Yes. It's, I don't know, it doesn't so much date as become iconic, I think. Yeah. I feel like it dates to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, it just made me laugh in that sort of opening scene when he's flying through. And yeah, the 80s clouds. What's with 80s and clouds? Mm. You're always flying through clouds, like Never Ending Story and all those kind of flying movies. Yeah. It just looked like, I don't know, a Bruce Springsteen music video or something. <laughs> Well, a lot of those clouds are cotton wool. Actually. Are they? Yeah, it's motion control ah. camera shots through models. And I've got a book on ILM's special effects through all of their movies in the 80s because a lot of it was, you know, building stuff and using ingenuity to create things practically. Okay. So, yeah, a lot of it is big chunks of cotton wool wow. sticking on poles and things and the motion control camera flying through them, which is why it's so precise rather than just a helicopter shot at night which, of course, you wouldn't be able to light very easily. So. Right, 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 yeah. right. That's impressive, knowing that, because they look like clouds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the special effects in this movie, if we talk about those for a while, mm. they're quite impressive, I think. There are a few ropey blue screen shots but there are shots in there that surprised me. Like, I didn't realise until very recently that there is a shot when the kids first go up in their Thunder Road spaceship for their first test drive, and they're spotted by Dick Miller in his helicopter, yeah. the Charlie character. There is a shot where the helicopter circles around the Thunder Road and it's got this big spotlight on there and it goes behind it and the spotlight sort of illuminates it from behind. And, and I'm looking at it and thinking, well... The ship's not there, and this isn't CGI, so how on earth do they manage to get all this interactive light with a real helicopter shot? And the truth is, it's all a model. Mm. The whole thing is a really complicated miniature model shot, including the whole landscape of the town beneath them. It's, right. Which I thought, well, hats off to you, because I've never spotted that. 
at all yeah. watching the movie. Yeah, I don't know. Some of the other blue screen effects with the spaceship flying up, mm. there's like obvious like squares around them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, there are a lot of shots in this that made me go, oh, yeah, there's an obvious effect right there. Mm. It's still impressive, though. And the most impressive part for me was the orb interacting with the environment. Yeah. So when they're in the basement and it's flying around erratically and just essentially destroying the house. (laughs) Like it's going through fridges and like support beams. Like I'm surprised no one got killed. I mean, they would have just been (laughs) annihilated by that. But everything blowing up around it was so well done. Like it looked real. Yeah. It looked like it was actually interacting. I know that, I mean, the lethality of it is something that they really don't go into. No. I mean, that scene, all three of them could be dead and so could numerous other innocent bystanders. But the scene where they go up on the hill to experiment with it and it just so happens that Ethan Hawke makes it larger because Darren says, how big can it go? And lucky he did because he materialises exactly where Wolfgang is standing. Yeah. So (laughs) it just encloses him because luckily it's just beneath his feet so it doesn't cut him off at the knees or something. I mean, they really could have murdered each other with that thing. (laughs) Easily, easily. I mean, the way that it goes into the earth as well. I mean, what was stopping it not going straight through the centre of the earth and just coming out the other side and destroying everything in its path? I mean, I did like the premise of it, though. It was something I'd never seen. It was very original. It is, yeah. It's an intriguing concept. And I think all the way through the first two acts of the movie, you've got these really great characters that you love spending time with building this thing after they've made this discovery and intrigued about where it's coming from and what the story is behind it. And the first flight scene where they take off is just exhilarating, I find. Mm. All of that stuff is really good. And there are lots of little details in there that make it delicious. Silly stuff, like when they go to the junkyard to get the stuff to make their ship out of, there's the guard dog that they have to give some chewing gum to. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just these weird details that you don't need to spend time on. But because it's a Joe Dante movie, it's in there. Mm. I think all of that works really well. The bit that sort of alienates people, to coin a phrase, is the final third and what happens when they do actually meet the people who are behind the signal. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like it's the same thing with Flight of the Navigator. Mm. The first two thirds of the film, both of the films, it's very riveting. It's quite thrilling. There's a sense of wonder and a sense of where is this going? And then when when they finally meet the alien being, whether it be a spaceship or an actual alien life form, it's not like a letdown. I wasn't let down by it, but I was just a little bit like, oh, is that it kind of thing. Yeah. I like the fact that the alien, so Wack and his sister, I think. Yeah, Neek. Yeah. All they know from Earth and humans is pop culture, so they're always reciting from TV shows and, and movies and stuff. That's really interesting. But, yeah, I don't know about the design, the creature design of the aliens for me. It was very muppety and very... I don't know. It was very kooky. It is, yeah, and it's surprising because it's Rob Bottin. Yes. So this is the guy behind The Thing and countless other 
landmark movies. Right, okay. And, yeah, for him to create something that's... They're very sort of plasticky and very primary coloured. It's basically green and purple. Hello to the 80s. Yes. I'm starting to notice it everywhere now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks to Vamp. Yeah, it is surprisingly Muppety and not terribly convincing, I don't think, no. as creatures. Yeah. I mean, Robert Picardo mentions this in the interview, what it was like working in all of that get up he can see in there because the freckles are where his eyes are but right. the thing i always had when i was watching the movie is i i knew that i recognized that that's where his eyes were so i would look at the face as being his mouth and that cluster of freckles and i'd never look at the eyes that are sort of blinking on stalks above the top oh right yes. it doesn't quite work mm. for me yeah i think everything else like if you close your eyes I think it's a really interesting take on aliens. Mm. The fact that they aren't here to kill us, they're not here to invade Earth, they're not menacing, but they're not harmless thing like E.T., where it's just like a child, pretty much. Yeah, um, They have a lot more intelligence, and the fact that they turn out to be children, like child aliens, is an yeah. interesting premise as well. And the fact that they're reciting TV and film quotes, and then when they say that they would like to go to Earth, but then that really profound scene where he says, like, but we know what you do to us, and it shows all these clips from, like, alien movies where humans are killing aliens. It's like, wow, this is hard-hitting stuff. This is not what I expected. No, and do you notice on the soundtrack there that Jerry Goldsmith is actually playing a forlorn version of Alien, his Alien score? Oh, is he? Wow. Yes, so he's kind of admitting complicity in this negative portrayal of xenomorphs. Oh, it's a little nod in the soundtrack. It's very clever. But it makes that scene so heartfelt and sad. Yes, yes. Yes, very, very much so. But then it's just sort of the seriousness of what they're saying is let down by <laughs> how they look. It just doesn't fit what I'm hearing. And, and mm. I don't know. I feel like they could have just toned it down just slightly. Mm. Just not make it so kooky and so ridiculous. Even leading up to it with that <laughs> the crazy spider machine thing that frisks Ben <laughs> in all the wrong ways. I know. Stop doing that to children. <laughs> yeah, I know. Especially when Ethan Hawke turns around and puts his hands on the wall and then you get loads of close-ups of his ass. Yeah. What's that like, all about? Like you didn't even need to turn around. And he only frisks Ethan Hawke as well. He doesn't yeah. frisk the other guy. Yeah. And, yeah, a lot of snuffling with that weird trunk thing. I mean, but, Lee, I mean, even that, even the design for that was interesting and fit. Even though it was humorous, it still was like, wow, this is an alien mm. machine thing. But then, yeah, when the aliens came out, I was a little bit disappointed. Yeah. Well, I think disappointment is a theme of the film, interestingly. It's subversive on Joe Dante's part. When he was brought on board, the movie didn't really have a third act. They were rushed into production. Mm. They didn't really have a finale. I think there was something about them. They played baseball with the aliens and then went home. Okay. It was, yeah, kind of pointless. So it, it was Joe Dante that came up with this idea of aliens that only knew about human society from watching pop culture and television. And, sure, right. And they would have this meaningful discussion and then exchange gifts and go their separate waves after a, a song and dance number. 
which is something, but a lot of people were put off by it. And the reviews that I've got are sort of the movie comes into its own in the third act versus great first and second act and then completely let down by the shaggy dog story at the ending. Yeah. People seem to not be able to reconcile the first two thirds of the movie with the finale. Yeah, they're just different films, though. The, yeah. the tone just completely shifts. And the only thing that's anchoring them together at all are the boys, yeah. the three young actors, and they are fantastic in it. But yeah, the finale, it's just like, what Like, what were they thinking? Like, what are they doing? They're in a shared dream, flying around a circuit board, and then Ben and the girl kiss in the cloud. I I don't know. No. <laughs> like, it just seemed very tacked on. It is, yeah. So what happened with the movie, it was originally scheduled to be released in August of 1985 uh-huh. but there was a change of hands at the studio around about that time and all of a sudden they told Joe Dante oh we're just going to release it in July a month early stop editing what it's fine as it is and you know there's lots of sci-fi movies out over the summer and kids want to see this stuff so it's going to make a huge amount of money and be a huge success so we're just going to put it out now okay and of course it was a disaster yeah <laughs> it's an unfinished film right it's entirely unfinished the last five minutes of the movie you've got a bit of a big elaborate fantasy sequence at the end that was part of a much bigger sequence that involved dick miller and lots of okay. revenge on the bullies at school all kinds of stuff sure they were supposed to have magical powers at the end of it right okay. so <laughs> yeah it's right. all just a hodgepodge and the scene where they're under the tree in the rain talking all of that is looped because none of the dialogue is what they actually said it's sort of three minutes of rushed editorial cobbling to try and mm. finish the film off because they wouldn't let them finish the film so what we're seeing is incomplete and joe dante's really sad about it. I mean, he doesn't really like talking about the Right, movie. right. The thing is, if you look at something like Starlog, just to get a sense of what it was like at the time, there are like five issues of Starlog where they're talking about explorers. There's one month, there's an interview with the director, then there's one with the kids, then there's one with the writer, then there's one with the producer, oh, wow. sneak peeks at the sets, all this excitement. And Back to the Future is, is sort of relegated. Oh, there's this time travel thing that yeah. you won't be interested in. Back to the Future <laughs> exploded mm. and dominated the charts and Explorers really didn't stand a chance. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really great movies to contend with, though. Goonies, Return to Oz, a re-release of E.T., Fright Night, Weird Science, Real Genius, My Science Project. Oh, wow. I mean, 1985. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, our special guest, Mr. Picardo, I was wondering if you could share a fascinating piece of trivia about Explorers. I'll give you the ultimate Star Trek trivia question for your audience that will stump anybody. Ah. Here it is. What Star Trek actor performed on a Star Trek set 16 years before he became a Star Trek actor? And of course, it's me, because Starkiller was shot on a Klingon torpedo bay set left over from Star Trek II. Wow. So those set pieces were sort of you, because it was they're both Paramount movies. So I'm performing in front of some Klingon, I guess that's a bird of prey is what it's called, the interior of a Klingon bird of prey. And I, of course, would not become a Star Trek actor until about a decade and a half later. Yeah. Something like that. It's an odd... It's an odd question. <laughs> it's a great piece of trivia.
even leading up to the spaceship like launching up into the air, there was so much wonder and sort of exhilaration mm. in that scene alone. And even <laughs> when one of them wants to turn the lights off and the other one's like, no, keep them on, it looks cooler. It's like, it sure does, it looks cooler, definitely keep them on. <laughs> There's even a scene yeah. with the spaceship when it's going up and it's got uh, these dogs barking at it. One of the dogs is the breed of dog that me and my wife currently own. It's a Britney. <laughs> it's a Baxter. It's a Britney, yes. Yeah, it's a Britney <laughs> Spaniel. And we never see them in movies, so we were, like, jumping for joy. Oh. In a tiny, tiny scene. <laughs> <laughs> and when they fly to the drive-in and it's Rob Picardo in this, like, faux <laughs> Star Wars Italian rip-off. B-grade oh, yeah. movie on the screen. It's just like, oh, this is great. <laughs> Star killer. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Nothing captures the sense of being 14 and out past your bedtime like Explorers. Mm. It just evokes all those feelings for me when I watch it. So yes. probably what the film is trying to cue you up for, as I said, is disappointment. There is a theme there, and it's in Dick Miller's character, Charlie, which has this lovely theme associated with it from Jerry Goldsmith on The Woodwinds that wasn't on the first release of the soundtrack album but was on the later expanded version thank god okay. it's this really sad sort of melancholy vibe that you get from charlie where he's talking about i haven't had dreams like this since i was a kid and there is this sense of an unrealized potential and that he wants to recapture something that he's lost and he's envious of these kids for the adventure that they're having. Yeah, sure. And I think the film sort of prepares you for that kind of disappointment in life where they've got all these hopes and dreams and then when Ethan Hawke's character Ben gets there and I've waited all my life to say this, we come in peace and the response he gets is, what's up, Doc? It's... <laughs> <laughs> I love that, by the way. It's great. <laughs> Very unexpected. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. But it's also not what people wanted. People weaned on Close Encounters and E.T. wanted this almost religious experience mm. and what Joe Dante delivered them instead was a pair of kids who'd stolen their dad's car yeah, which is right. much more relatable and it's kind of preparing you for the reality of life I oh, think oh no <laughs> <laughs> But in the end, they get superpowers and fly around in some circuit board dreamland. Yeah, kissing a girl <laughs> that they've sort of stalked and not even spoken to. I mean, in the magazine I was talking about, they even interview Amanda Peterson about her exciting role in this movie. And yeah. she, does she speak in the movie? I think she says Ben. I think that's it. Yeah. I suppose it's fitting that Laurie is just this idealised vision of a girl that they don't speak to. As a representation of a 14 year old's experience of women that's pretty apt i think accurate yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think young boys should be encouraged to talk to girls as soon as possible yeah rather than kind of fantasizing about what they are to yeah. them they should just yeah just talk to them get to know them yes don't stalk them in a bubble outside their window <laughs> no no don't creep into their girls locker room don't hide behind a bush or something you know just yeah. treat them like human beings <laughs> it's a good lesson i think <laughs> 
I'm looking at you, the 80s. <laughs> I think this is informed by your recent John Hughes movie marathon. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. In any case, I think it's fair to say Laurie does not have a big role in this movie. <laughs> yeah, there's one scene where she sees the they, they crash land into the water and she goes to investigate and then she just lurks in the background mm. and then goes away yes. when they leave. She didn't say anything. It seems like a pointless scene that she's in. Why? Yeah, I think there's a whole load of subplots that are missing because of what happened to this movie. I think there's a scene at a party where she does have a conversation with Ben okay. and he gives her the ring that she's wearing in the final flying sequence that she goes to look at so they cut just before she looks at it. Okay. There's a whole lot of stuff that's missing. Like the guy at the drive in who looks at Starkiller and when the Thunder Road is in front of it and it's like really expensive cutting edge ILM special effects and he says that looks so fake. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's supposed to be Ben's brother, Ben oh. Crandall's older brother who he makes reference to when they're up by the tree. Oh. I used to come up here with my brother all the time. Right. There's lots of stuff that's missing and some of it is in the Explorer's storybook that I recently got doing research for this episode. Mm -hmm. There are stills in the storybook from scenes that aren't in the movie. I'll tweet some of them out. Okay. Yeah. This movie was cruelly treated by its studio, sadly. That's unfortunate. It is, yeah. Uh, actually, one thing I was very impressed with this film um, is the alien spaceship that they dock into. Mm. The uh, production like set design was very interesting. Mm. It's something I've never seen a spaceship looking like. It, it looked like just this huge, metallic-y, stone-looking modern art installation piece. Yeah. It's like just massive sort of monolithic, strange curves. Really interesting. Yeah, and it's so detailed and the sets are so big and they so spend big. so yes. much time wandering around in them, including the obligatory 80s kids going down a slide sequence, which yeah. you have to Yes, have. of course, of course. But it's a big slide. It is a very big slide. Yeah. yeah, and the scene where Darren has some sort of telepathic experience and if you do that frame by frame, you see shots from scenes that aren't in the movie again <laughs> and you're thinking... Sorry, what's this? What's this? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, when they're exploring through all the sort of uh, rooms and corridors of the spaceship, it, it felt like they were going through a funhouse or, mm. or even it reminded me of like never-ending story, like going from one strange environment to another strange environment. It had a real sense of suspense. Yeah, it's an interesting sequence and it builds up your excitement for what they're eventually going to find at the end, only to be disappointed, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And I don't really see the point of it all or why the spider gropes them. I, just, I don't know what it's, yeah. what it's all there for, yeah. rather than just meeting them at the door. But I don't know. Mm. It's very odd. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we should talk about, because I've often talked about it, this is Jerry Goldsmith. Yes, your favourite. At his finest. Yes. It's my favourite score of his. Is it? Yes, without a doubt. It's a wonderful blend of orchestra and synths. The synths played live on stage with the orchestra, oh, not wow. MIDI and added in later. They actually played with the orchestra so that the sounds are blending. Oh. Yeah, I don't know what to say other than I think it's just a wonderful combination of magical, strangely melancholy and heartfelt and nostalgic and really propulsively 
particularly exciting, especially in that first launch sequence. And the main theme during the construction is just such a beautiful evocation of childish hope and dreams and and a sense of a quest and a mission. It's just beautifully done, the whole thing. Mm. I definitely did love it. Um, I don't know whether I can recall any themes, but it did propel the movie higher than it could have been. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I feel no. like I don't know the score enough because you have obviously watched this movie many, many times yeah. and know the score off by heart. But yeah, I will take another listen after. I'd recommend it. It's a very clever score because it's built from a foundation of the alien signal that you hear right at the very beginning. Those notes are turned into Wolfgang's theme. When you first see the alien spaceship, there is a variation on the theme that Jerry used for Wolfgang's theme, which is a little hint that you're just meeting another slightly eccentric family. Uh-huh. The love theme is comes out of the alien signal theme as well. And the the main heroic theme, the construction theme, has such an odd time signature to it. I think it's 1516 or it's alternating bars of 88 eight and 78. It's a really okay. odd time signature. <laughs> Towards the end of the bar, it just sort of skips a beat and just gives it that sense of childish impatience to you know, ah, right. get on with it, but yes. without being too disjointed. It's just wonderful stuff. Gotta love Jerry. <laughs> <sighs> I love this movie. <laughs> Coming up next is the second instalment of the Picado interview. I have a book here with me that I've had since I was a child called Behind the Mask, The Secrets of Hollywood's Monster Movies. Mm -hmm. And there is a whole chapter in here that is devoted to Robert Picardo, the man behind the mask. And it starts with the deathless phrase, Robert Picardo has probably worn more rubber than any man alive. (laughs) Well, at that time, at that age, that's probably true. Fortunately, I managed to change all that. Had I been, for example... (laughs) Had I played a makeup character in the Star Trek franchise I worked on, let's put it this way. Explorers helped create a sort of claustrophobia for working in prosthetic makeup that has since, in the intervening years, has grown worse. So now Uh I could never do what I did as a young man. It was playing the character of the father in Explorers Mm. when I was literally buried alive. Right. And... uh, I think that day from the moment I started to get the makeup on to the moment it came off was 22 hours. Oh gosh. And I do remember when they took the second meal break and everyone was eating and I was standing there because I couldn't eat or anything, couldn't sit down. Wow. I remember little tears trickling down my eyes because I thought I can't do this anymore. Wow. So it was the end of that right. phase of my <laughs> of my career, which I'm glad about. I made my mark. I, there's a whole chapter, as you said, in a book uh, <laughs> devoted to special effects makeup. So I'm, I am proud of my legacy, but I can't say that I'm sorry to see it go. <laughs> and I also, I'm envious now of the major stars who perform like Jeffrey Rush in Pirates of the Caribbean, where they're basically wearing a makeup that doesn't exist. They're mm. just wearing reference points on their face and the whole prosthetic makeup is tracked over by the computer is tracked onto their own features. That I will still do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, how was it with the young cast of the film? So this is a debut for Ethan Hawke and for River Phoenix. Did those guys ever actually see you out of the makeup? Not until the rap party. And at the <laughs> rap party, 
I went up to them and it was when I opened my mouth and said, hey, you guys have never seen me. And they immediately were like, oh, you know, they were treating me like the Lawrence Olivier of latex. You know, they, were, <laughs> they just thought I was great. And uh, but that was the first time they ever saw my face live. <laughs> you know, you may have seen pictures was uh, at the rap party. So and they were also talented. All three of those young men were just mm. great. And uh such a tragedy to lose River. He was an incredible talent and was on his way to becoming a major film actor. Yeah, for sure. And Jason Presson, also very talented. I know he uh, acted for a long time after that. I haven't seen him in a while. And of course, Ethan Hawke went on to become you know, a superstar and, and a, just a great actor. When I see one of his great performances, like last season when he did um, the Paul Schrader film where he played a Minister, oh, first reform, reformed, yeah, first reform. That was amazing. Boy, what a great performance! Mm. He's just a, you know, he's just become a real powerhouse uh, as a as an actor. So that gives me a certain amount of pride that I was there at the beginning, mm. trying to ruin him right then, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but without success. Yeah. One of the things that's proved very divisive about the film is the finale. Mm -hmm. I have two reviews of the film. One is Leonard Moulton saying, the film opens beautifully, then takes a disastrous wrong turn in space that transforms the film into a shaggy dog joke. <laughs> and I have another reviewer who says, if the first half is slow, the movie comes into its own once the teenage heroes meet Whack and Neek. <laughs> so how do you feel about this irreconcilable aspect of the two halves of the movie? Oh. Because there are two different movies. There's no doubt about it. And the first part of the movie is quite sensitive about its creation. The, the, this kind of, I, I mean, there's that wonderful scene where Dick Miller, as the local cop, sees the kids take off in space. And you get that whole looking into his eyes, that whole, boy, I would have loved to have done that when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. That kind of admiration. They're having an adventure. They're following this amazing dream. So that's what the whole first two thirds of the movie are, is sort of listening to this inner voice that they're getting and following your dream and dreaming big and whatever those themes are. Mm. And then suddenly it becomes a joke about learning about Earth culture from 1960s television because <laughs> the actor they cast, I don't watch the same TV and haven't watched the same TV that these 14-year-old protagonists have watched, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a then 31-year-old actor, yeah. and I'm remembering everything on television from when, when I was 14, okay? My peak TV-watching years. Mm. So there's a whole disconnect between their experience and... And that's completely unexplained. Yeah. And I even thought of it at the time. I'm making jokes from my perspective, not from a 14-year-old's perspective. So um, that's a problem with the movie. And I, I've heard of Leonard Maltin's review before. It's just because the movie changes tone fairly abruptly. Now, again, I just think that Joe Dante has the capacity to create that sort of childhood longing for adventure but he also has the subversive streak of someone who's poking fun at movie genres, you know, poking fun at the same time he's elevating something. And I, I think that's really the, what makes him so popular and fun, his movies. Um, and it's in all of his movies, certainly. Mm, yeah. In The Howling, while the werewolf is about to stalk and kill the woman, there's a little computer screen with a, a cartoon with the big bad wolf <laughs> and the three little piggies. It's, it's, he's constantly... 
he's having it both ways, I guess, all the time. Yeah. And of course, it was disappointing. It was sort of looked at, I think, as kind of a second rate Goonies, right? Because Goonies had come out the same summer. And it did terrible business, I believe, yeah. in its initial release. But I know it has kind of become a, a cult classic. Mm. And let's put it this way. It's the only movie I'm ever going to get a triple N credit in. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. <laughs> yes. I was going to ask you about that. So were you approached for Whack and ended up being Starkiller, the B-movie heartthrob, and uh, Whack's father as well? Did that sort of evolve or were you approached about all three? Or I, Honestly, I cannot specifically recall. I, I know that from the beginning I was going to play the father as well because that was a decision that had to be made early on. Mm. And I'm not sure, and don't hold me to this, and Joe would probably remember, but I think that may have come later. Mm. Starkiller is so much fun, because his idea was that it was a bad, an Italian knockoff on a space movie. Yeah. And, and I said to him, could I speak my lines in kind of pidgin Italian, because I know very little Italian, but I have a pretty good Italian accent. Because, you know, I, I'm of Italian heritage and I have Italian relatives. Mm. So I, the idea was that I spoke my lines in kind of pidgin Italian and then looped them into English badly. <laughs> so that was fun. So this has been enormous fun to um, looking back on Explorers. What would your final thoughts be? Yes, uh, it was basically my swan song to heavy makeup. Mm -hmm. I did do, after that, I did let Rob Bottin mold me for uh, Johnny Cap in Total Recall. So that technically uh, was my yes. last feature film role in makeup, even though that one, of course, is phoned in. <laughs> I'm just a puppet and do the voice. But uh, I am proud of Explorers. It was a very creative experience for me because the third act of the movie wasn't really written. I got to improvise a lot, and then they had to pick and choose from all the stuff I threw at them. And I got to work with those three great young actors. So it was as much fun as it could be in miserable circumstances physically <laughs> uh, that I would never be able to go through. Now it's hard for me to sit on a, I can't sit on a middle seat in an airplane, much less have, you know, 40 pounds of latex poured over me every morning to live in all day. So I would say that my, um, I paid a price for movies like Explorers. I do seriously believe that my claustrophobia is a little bit of, you know, PTSD from, from being buried alive in some of those roles. But at least we have the work that's still around and still amusing people and makes me feel perhaps that my uh, ongoing phobia, <laughs> <laughs> at least it paid for something worthwhile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us about the movie. Uh, my pleasure. It's a wonderful movie, and I think you're wonderful in it. So thank you. Thank you, Conrad. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Ah, are you ready to embark on a galactic journey into the Movie Awards? It's where we pick our favourite orb-obliterating parts of the film in a number of circuit board dream-inspired categories. Best quote! I love so many lines in this movie, but it has to be, for me, smooth move, X-Lax, which 
right. is what Darren says to Wolfgang after the Thunder Road plows through the drive-in concession stand. Yeah, it's so much distraction, by the way. Oh, I'm God. surprised no one was killed. Yes, exactly. But that phrase is one that I've used ever since. Smooth move, X-Lags. Oh, nice. My favourite quote is when uh, I think they first put all the sort of programming into the computer and it's like programming itself and then Wolfgang asks Ben how did you dream this and then Ben replies I guess I'm just that kind of guy (laughs) (laughs) sort of guy that dreams about alien circuit boards yep (laughs) sure why not of course best hair or costume I think this has to go to Wolfgang. Uh, of the, course it does. <laughs> the wearer of corduroy blazers with pens in the pocket, a sweater vest, a shirt and tie, trousers that stop three inches above the ankle, yeah. <laughs> black slip-ons and white socks, <laughs> all topped off with huge paedophile glasses. He just is the epitome of nerd. <laughs> it really oh, is impressive. Yeah. I mean, I had those exact glasses when I was a kid. So I oh, totally, wow. <laughs> totally relate to him. But I, I loved how he just looked like a mini adult. Like he looked like his dad, but just smaller. Like all the, the lab yeah. coat and everything, the, the shit and tie. It was <laughs> like adorable. <laughs> Most 80s moment. This film is very, very 80s in, in oh, yeah. so, so many ways. I mean, the, the thing that stands out for me, one, Walkie-talkies, the only mode of communication (laughs) between kids in the 80s. And it's in every single (laughs) 80s movie with kids and every single 80s nostalgic sort of retro-inspired movies now. uh, Summer of 84, Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. It. Yes, it. Uh, The other 80s thing I did notice about this film is just the tremendous amount of danger that kids are putting themselves through (laughs) and it's just normal you know climbing outside your window onto the roof of your house a a tiled (laughs) roof to snuggle in a sleeping bag to look at the stars or you know three kids just wandering around in the middle of the night building a spaceship (laughs) why not it's the 80s yeah well, I was a kid in the 80s and I can tell you, yeah, it's amazing any of us survived because <laughs> we really did do shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to strangers. Yeah, everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> Favorite scene. I really liked the when they were venturing into the uh, alien spaceship and they're walking around all these strange ah. and wonderful corridors and the lighting was really cool. It was quite bright lighting um so you could actually see Mm. everything and it was just yeah really really interesting set design i was not expecting for a spaceship i've never seen a spaceship look like that very cool no or since actually yeah Uh, for me it's the whole sequence where they go on their first flight Uh, i find it so exhilarating and fun and exciting and trashing the drive-in and then that fantastic sequence when the alien signal takes over their ship and they start flying directly upwards and wolfgang turns the field off momentarily so they can get some air and they plummet towards the earth Oh, it's just a fantastic, exciting, fun, quirky, silly action sequence with astonishing music from Jerry Goldsmith. That moment when they're falling and he's got 
the falling rushing strings for the air flying in and the brass pounding away to give you that lurching feeling in your stomach oh. as you're falling. It's just so, it's brilliant. The whole sequence is amazing. Most cliched sci-fi moment. I actually did find it hard to pick out a cliche because it didn't, the aliens were not what I thought they were going to be. This, even the mm. spaceship that they build is not what I thought it would be. I didn't think they would build a spaceship from a, a funfair ride with <laughs> washing machine doors and a trash can that had no apparent reason in the front of it. <laughs> no, I'm the same. I think it sort of defined quite a few things that became cliches later. I think certainly Joe Dante's idea of an alien culture that only knows Earth culture from intercepting TV signals is something that he thought was really original and then he was gutted because there was an episode of Amazing Stories called Fine Tuning, I think, that came out in November of 85. Okay. Directed by Bob Balaban, Balaban and that has the same premise and there was a, an episode of Tales from the Dark Side called Distant Signals starring Lenny Von Dolan and that has the same premise in the same year so he was oh, really bummed he thought right. it was original but and of course it's cropped up in lots of things ever since so Transformers. In Spaced Invaders <laughs> Transformers <laughs> yeah that's true favourite special effect my favourite effect is actually one of the final shots of the movie, which is the kids flying. And it's purely because, although it's not 100% convincing, because it's uh, blue screen compositing, it's a chemical process rather than computer-driven compositing that we have now, so it's not seamless. But it's just the fact that from the moment when the Explorer's title comes up, Jerry's theme launches, and Ethan Hawke strikes a Superman pose, you suddenly realise that in one uninterrupted shot, the camera goes around him, over and above him, and then pulls slowly away from him as he dives down towards this landscape and through the clouds. And you suddenly think to yourself, hang on, how big was the blue screen room that they were working in? Right. Because to have a volume that's entirely blue and a motion control camera on a crane panning around your characters flying and they're all there flying, mm. you suddenly think, hang on, this is a really ambitious shot for chemically composited blue screen work. Wow. And you can't see it because it's got the credits plastered <laughs> all over it. So it's such a bummer. Anyway, but that's my favourite shot. Oh, movie. wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, my favourite special effect was was that giant spider machine thing. It oh, just yeah. looked really cool. It's stop motion. It's stop motion, right? It's stop motion. Yeah. It's sometimes yeah. hard to tell with these movies. But yeah, mm. just really cool, huge spider with great sounds, which I'll, I'll cover in my favourite sounds. Uh, but yeah, it, <laughs> it was very scary, actually, as well. Like, I... Wasn't anticipating it. It just looked really cool. I just like yeah. giant arachnids. Spiders. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to be used to those living where you live. <laughs> Best sound effect. Yes, so of course, uh, I already said it. My favorite sound is that giant spider. Yeah. I love it when it's accosting. Ben as well because there's just so many weird sounds in there. I mean, uh, as, as as well as the sort of clanking, really heavy metal clanking of its legs, it's like a trunk comes out and starts sniffling around, and then and then it takes pictures and this huge kind of shutter flash sounds. It's yeah, it's just a great great little moment of like audio goodness, weirdness. Yeah, and I weirdness. love the little alarm as well. Where it goes, yeah. and it's obviously 
actually just a person going. My favourite sound is the bubble. I think the yeah. synthesizer effects they use for the bubble really give it presence. It's just whistling, glassy synthesizer tones, but with the Doppler effect that they put on it, it gives it a real presence in the scenes and gives you a sense that although it's kind of cute, it's also really powerful and fast. And I don't know how they did it. It's a really good combination yes. of sound design and synthesis programming and mixing, I guess. It really works well. Mm. I, I love it when they're sort of interacting with it as well, when they're touching it, they're tapping mm. it, and there's a very sort of really subtle synthy like impact sounds when, when he's tapping it with his finger. It's great. Yeah, it's really good stuff. I like it. Most funniest scene. The funniest scene was when they had the orb and they had made it big and it went into the earth and it produced a giant hole, but it also, <laughs> for some reason, disturbed a gopher or some sort of mole creature <laughs> that popped out of its little burrow and just made a squeaky sound. <laughs> I did not expect that and yeah just hilarious those are the kind of touches that makes me love Joe Dante sure. it's like the bubblegum chewing dog it's just <laughs> why is it in there but it's great that it is I yeah. just love these little moments like yes that. yes <laughs> for me it's when the bubble goes berserk in Wolfgang's basement and just starts <laughs> smashing everything to smithereens oh. and you get the cat flying up in the air at one point. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you can hear his mouse Heinlein, which has these keys set up that it can press to trigger voice synthesis phrases and you can just hear it pressing, help, help, <laughs> in the background. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and when wow. it flies out of a window and wreaks havoc in the neighbourhood and you can just hear these muffled shrieks from neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of oral as well as visual comedy. I mm. just, I'm in fits throughout that whole sequence, even though, as you point out, they could have all died. Oh. <laughs> should have all died. Yeah, and their house, really their house would be rubble. Rubble. It's going through support beams and co solid concrete. Like, <laughs> that's, that's insane. I know, next stiff breeze, that thing's going over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And that's our Mooblies. Yes. It's the most important part of the pod. It's the final verdict. Should explorers be propelled into the 80s blue screen clouds to fly free and be appreciated by all? Or should it be encased in a bubble and propelled into the dark recesses of the earth, the oubliette, <laughs> to be erased from 80s nostalgia history? Oh, well, better come to me first, I yeah. guess, because... <laughs> I think I know what you think about this film. I don't think there's any suspense after <laughs> all my gushing and various mentions in previous episodes. Plus, I got to speak to Robert Picardo, which was amazing, mm. and he was so generous with his time. 
and I was gushing all over him as well, poor man. So I think it's fairly obvious that I love this movie. I think it's one of the great undiscovered gems of the 80s. I think it does have a fairly strong cult following now as people watched it on cable or saw it on VHS like myself, watching it many, many Sunday nights before having to go back to school and dreaming of building my own spaceship with Wolfgang and Ben and flying off into the <laughs> cosmos rather than going back to school. It's funny, it's quirky, it has believable, naturalistic characters, it's got great vintage industrial light and magic special effects, an incredibly exciting and exhilarating score from Jerry Goldsmith. And even though the third act is a bit odd tonally and perhaps a disappointment compared with the promise of the first part of the movie. I still enjoy it and think it's good fun and I think the underlying message of the movie of girding your loins a little bit and preparing yourself for disappointment in life is no bad thing. And I'm still tremendously fond of it and I enjoyed watching it again for this podcast and will probably return to it quite often. So I think it should be set free i think we should build a thunder road two for it and send it flying straight away yeah all right 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 well what, what about you <laughs> i'm on tenterhooks oh well <laughs> I, I i think i agree with all the critics about this film that the third act is just pff, it's not, it's a different movie it, it just doesn't mm. really gel and yeah the Creature design for the aliens, oh, it was a letdown for me. I, I expected something yeah. more mysterious or something more, I don't know, ethereal maybe. Mm. But I do feel like the sense of wonder and dreaming of distant lands and, and the galaxy that was portrayed by those three actors, mm. Ethan Hawke, River Phoenix, and Jason Presson, was amazing. Yeah. The chemistry between them, the sort of camaraderie that they built. I'm not sure whether this film is for modern audiences. It does date a bit for me, like some of the blue screen effects and um, the Tron circuit board stuff was, <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> <It's> not... <laughs> I'm sure people would try to pull that off deliberately again now. Though. Probably now, but... Uh, it just makes me cringe a little bit. <laughs> I think the movie overall, it is enjoyable and definitely for kids, I think it's a must watch. Mm. So it's a yes from you? It is a yes for me. It's a Yay! yes for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm relieved. So I guess I'll activate that bubble and set it free. And don't kill anyone. <laughs> you always have Paris. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, thank God that's gone. <laughs> but what's left of our studio? Oh, dear. <laughs> so we've got some hoovering up to do before next time. And especially before our next guest arrives. Yeah. I was so excited to speak with Robert Picardo. It was amazing. And you Patreon patrons have special access to the full interview. Yes, we talked for over an hour when we were originally booked just for half an hour, and that was because he was enjoying himself, and uh... he said so much. He talked about Voyager, of course, Star Trek Voyager. He talked about Inner Space and his role as the cowboy, including oh. revealing what it is that he whispers in Meg Ryan's ear. 
exclusively Ooh. for the first time. Wow. <laughs> but that was nothing to do with Explorers, so we didn't include it here. But it's in the full version on Patreon. So mm. check that out. Yeah. So uh, if you want to become a Patreon patron, for as little as a dollar, you can suggest a film that we might cover in a future episode. And for $5, you get to listen to that Picardo interview mm. and all the other great bonus stuff that we have lurking in that Patreon page. Yes, there's loads of stuff in there. Very exciting. So, Conrad, are we doing something exciting next episode? Well, we will be journeying to France next time. Oh, yes. We don't do a lot of foreign language films on this show, so I'm very pleased that our special guest for next time chose for us the 1995 science fiction fantasy film... The City of Lost Children. Mm, this is going to be only our third foreign language film that we're going to be discussing. Looking ah. forward to it. So yes, the Junet et Caro movie, Marc Caro and Jean-Pierre Junet directed this movie. And it stars Ron Perlman, Daniel Emil Falk, Judith Vitet and Dominique Pignon. So there we go. Great. I don't remember this movie, and yet I remember liking it, so it's really strange. I'm the same. I'm exactly the same. And I don't remember Ron Perlman speaking French, so that's going to be interesting no. to revisit. <laughs> it really is. Yes, I was very pleased when our special guest chose this one, because I thought, yes, I don't remember this movie at all. It's really <laughs> fallen into the oubliette, despite probably being a classic, but we shall see. Mm, we, we shall. See. shall. And if you want to keep up with our episodes and be notified when we release City of Lost Children with our guest, uh, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as movieoubliette. Yes, and if you'd like to email us, we're at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Send us comments on the movies we've covered and make fun of us. I don't know, anything you want, really. Yeah, critique us, you know, tell us yeah. all the things that we said wrong, all the misinformation. Yeah. We love it. We, we, we do, yeah. Tell us your stories about listening to the podcast. And also, don't forget, we have the extended interview with Robert Picardo in our Patreon. Yes, it's fun. Robert Picardo is amazing. <laughs> so you've got to listen to it. It's worth it, honestly. <laughs> Thanks, listeners, for joining us on this journey into space. Yes, childhood nostalgia. We love it. <laughs> Bye for now. Goodbye. <laughs> review the films others tend to forget. I've waited all my life to say this. We come in peace. Yeah. <laughs>